Good morning. Got to get some things turned on this morning. Got a microphone in this pocket. And then I got a laser beam that I get a point at you in this pocket. So at least that's what my students would do. Um, good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm excited to be uh, speaking and sharing with you. Travis was kind enough to offer me an opportunity. And so I, I took the opportunity. Thank you, Travis. I think you're here. There he is. All right. Um, but anyway, I always enjoy an opportunity to come and share with you and uh, kind of process some thoughts with you. Hopefully this morning uh, you will find what I have to share beneficial. I will say up front, it might seem a little odd, okay, but stay with me. Keep swimming and we'll kind of get to the other side, but it's going to seem a little different um, as we begin. But um, one of the things when I was first here years ago, and Jim Hafer, thank you for leading singing, by the way. Jim Hafer was my elder in charge of sorts. And um, I had had an opportunity. We had gone through some ministers that were leaving and going and back and forth. And so I filled the pulpit a few times there when, when we were between Dan Chambers and, and Jonathan Jones. And Jim came to me one day and he said, hey, Bert, don't worry about it. Just teach about what you know. Does that sound like a Jimism? That sounds very Jim to me. At least that's what I remember. He's probably thinking, I don't remember that. But um, yeah, it was just kind of, hey, Bert, teach about what you know. Stay, stay where you're secure. And so this morning, I'm going to teach about what I know, uh, which is going to take about 10 seconds, and then I'll teach about what I don't know. But uh, we're going to start with a video this morning, and uh, I know you're going to enjoy this, okay? So just hang in there. Hey, guys. Good morning. I want to start something off a little different today, so just kind of hang in there for a minute, and I think it will all make sense. But this morning, before we start our lesson, we're going to talk a little bit about calculus, all right? And, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about calculus, really, all you're really talking about is the nature of a curve. There are certain things that we look at when we look at a curve. One would be things like rate of change, or maybe you remember from Algebra 1, they call that slope. Another one would be acceleration, you know, how fast is the rate of change uh, changing and a, and a third option might be like the area under the curve. All of those uh, deal with the discipline of calculus. And we're going to do a quick example of that. I'm going to give us a cubic, and that's kind of the form that we have here. Of course, we understand the tail end would drop down over here, and, and the curve would eventually move up to there, but we're only going to focus on maybe this area of the curve. And we're going to give that curve a name. In this case, we'll call it f of x. And we'll let it be something like x cubed plus 3x squared plus 2x minus 4. And that's just the name of the curve. Now, if we're looking for a position on the curve, if we plug in a value, say x equals 2, like so, and then we plug that in, we might get something like 8 plus 12 is 20 plus another 4, uh, and then minus a 4. So we would end up with... 20. And so that would tell us that x equals 2, we are at 20 units above. Now, if we take the first derivative, we would call this f prime of x. But taking the first derivative, you bring the 3 down, that gives you a 3x, the 3 becomes a 2. Then you bring the 2 down, that gives us a 6x, the 2 becomes a 1. And then you bring the 1 down, we get a 2, and the x becomes, or the exponent becomes a 0, so it's 2 times 1, anything to the 0 is 0, and the 4 simply cancels out. 
And now we take the two and we plug it back in. This time we get four times three, which is 12, plus another 12, which is 24, plus a two, which brings us to 26. What that tells us is that at this point right here, the slope or the rate of change is 26 units to one. In other words, for every 26 units up, we travel one unit over, and that's called the rate of change. If we take one more level, we end up with the acceleration. In other words, how fast is the rate of change changing? So we take the second derivative, we get 6x, the two becomes a one, so it's just 6x to the first. The one comes out front plus six, the x goes to the zero power, anything to the zero is one, and the two disappears. So the acceleration or the rate of change at which the rate of change is changing, I know that sounds kind of cumbersome, is 6x plus 6. Plugging in a 2, we get 12 plus 6, which is 18. And so the second derivative gives us 18. In other words, we're accelerating at 18 units per second squared. And that's what we have here. This is just a simple discussion of what we would call calculus. We're dealing with the nature of a curve. I think it's really exciting. I don't know, but I really enjoy calculus. And I just kind of wanted to bring this lesson to you, and maybe this is something that you enjoy. Thank you for paying attention to this morning, and we're going to come back and talk about this in just a minute. Yeah. Who knew? All right. So some of you right now want three minutes and 30 seconds back of your life. All right. Some of you have just triggered. There'll be therapy later in the hall. Okay? This is my life, people. All right? This is what I get to do. And I love calculus. And I love algebra, too. And just like what you just did when I teach every single day of the week, my students have one question. When will I ever use that in the real world? Yeah, all right, I get that question. And I tell them, you know what, you don't have to because McDonald's is still hiring. <laughs> all right, so I'm point made, all right. Um, this is calculus, and I love it, and I have a passion. And if you want to, we can meet and talk about it and do some more problems. I got a couple engineers in there. You know, Brent, you with me, right? You tracked? Yeah, farmer's like, yeah, more calculus. All right, so, uh, you know, for some of us, this, this works. Okay, for me to say that you now love calculus would be a bit of a stretch. Okay, amen. I got an amen finally. All right, I knew I had to get it somewhere. All right, but I'm going to give you another lesson in calculus. Okay, so hang on. Here's lesson two. Tell me how this works for you. <laughs> So that's calculus too. That, that was the curve, 
all right, the height. That was the velocity, how fast he's going. When he comes down and drops into that g-force, that's acceleration. All right, now that's calculus on a 3D spectrum. We did calculus on a very flat two-dimensional spectrum, so that's more calculus two and three. But you get the idea, that man's ride was much different than your experience. And when I get ready to teach class in the morning, if I were to come in and get my kids that riled up, that experience that they're dying to have, because the first experience was, I'll be honest, was a snoozer, right? The second experience was like, okay, I was there. How many of you have ridden a roller coaster? You can thank a calculus person for that. There is a mathematician behind that journey. And you're glad he didn't get a C- minus in Cal 2 like I did. So that's true. That's a true story. Sad story, but we'll stay out of that. Um, but there's a difference there in how you engage that particular discipline. One of them is cognitive. And it's just kind of coming in, coming in, and coming in as waves. And the other one is actually on the ground experiential. Right? And so that's the difference between those two calculus classes. I imagine if I taught a class like that and my students behaved like that, the teachers down the hall would stick their head out, what is going on? I'd get some looks, a little body language, right? Wouldn't be long before the principal was down there, the administration, looking at what's going on. They said, that is not common core. We're going to put you on a growth plan, Mr. Paddock. Okay? One is cognitive, and one is experiential. Now, I, I've titled my lesson uh, something like The Artistry of the Text. Okay? And so this morning, I want to show you a little bit of that as we move through the text. And I'll be moving quickly, but I'll be using text that you're familiar with. Okay, and so it shouldn't be a big stretch for you, but I want to just kind of plot through some of these texts. And I know I had, to, I had to put enough text up there to get the point across, so it made the font a little small. But I'll tell you what's going on, okay? And, and you can trust me on this. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and this is the account of the heavens and the earth when, uh, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens uh, and the shrub and, and the fields and uh, everything appeared and, and the land and, and the plants and everything came up. And in verse 6, but streams came up uh, from the earth and watered the whole uh, surface of the earth. And the Lord God formed the man out of the... And I could read that and, and that's one thing, okay? And that's textual and, and we do that. We read Genesis chapter 2 sometimes. But I want you to look at this really quick. What is that? That's Adam and Eve in the garden during creation. And you recognize this because that's flannel graph. Do you remember flannel graph when you first started? And we put little Adam up and we put little Eve up and we put in some animals. By the way, if you Google flannel graph creation, you have to be careful. Some of our flannel graph creators are a little more too true to life. Okay, you got to get the shrubbery put in place because Adam and Eve were naked. But this is the visual that helps me experience the textual. So there's an experience. This is art. And what was happening, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Maybe I'll talk about it now. The oral tradition that our faith is embedded in, and understand that, the text was not, hey, God gives us a pamphlet, here's Genesis 1, here's Genesis 2. It was an oral tradition. 
and they sat down with their kids and they didn't say, let me tell you about calculus. They said it in a way that it was narrative. We love story, right? Go back to when you're a child. You play story. You watch one episode of the Dukes of Hazards, and the next day your little matchbox cars can fly through the air, right? You watch one episode with Clint Eastwood outdrawing the enemy, and the next day it's cowboys and robbers, right? Lately it's, it's the Avengers, right? And you got a little cape and you jump off the roof. You're flying every... We love story. And sometimes when it comes to the text... We want to have the cognitive without the experiential. Here's another one. This is Genesis chapter 6. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both of them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark's to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof on it, finish it within 18 inches, put a top on it, put a door on it. Uh, can we do better? How many of you have been to this? All right, this is Ken Ham, right? That's a different experience. I can go knock on that. I can't get in it and get it. I mean, I can't paddle it. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to get in the water with that thing. It may not even be waterproof. I don't know. But it becomes meaningful and experiential. And so think about this text. By the time it's handed on to generation after generation after generation, and they're still going through the details of how wide and how tall and how big and within 18 inches. Why? Are we planning to build another ark? Do we need these blueprints? No. I'm trying to tell my children and my children's children about how God redeemed humanity even in the midst of their violence. How God redeemed. And this is how he did it. He did it with a boat. And let me tell you a little bit about that boat so you can kind of get an idea. I know when I was a kid, we, we had little figurines and stuff. I imagine if you were in the, the Hebrew tradition, the, the Israelite tradition, you might have little wooden arcs that your daddy would carve you and say go play with this merry christmas it's not christmas yet that won't happen for 2000 years but you get the idea right some of you catching on you'll, you'll unpack that later all right but there's one here's one uh exodus 26 make a tabernacle with 10 curtains finely twisted Linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them and, and have skilled craftsmen. God even brings these artists to work in the kingdom because he's building an abode for his presence among his humanity. Again, by the time this was written, the tabernacle probably wasn't even being used. We've moved on to the temple. But we still have these instructions just in case one day... God says, hey, it's time to go back to the desert. No, he's trying to get us to understand, to visualize the faith journey with which we belong. Now, again, usually when I get to this part of Exodus and we start the, we start the blueprints for the tabernacle, you know what I'm doing? I'm flipping to the back of my Bible to see if there's any pictures. Or I'm grabbing my kid's Bible and say, this is the one with the pictures. Because that does not show me this. One of those takes this 
and brings something to light that I can identify with. I can see the glory of God within the tabernacle there. And I begin to engage with the text and process the text in meaningful ways. This kind of stuff happens throughout. This is the temple. These are the directions given from David to Solomon, his son, about the house of God, the permanent residence where God was to come live. And he defines everything from the lampstands to the sacrificial tools to what the priests are wearing. And I get into this same text and I got to tell you, it starts getting a little difficult to process. I hope I'm not the only one, but oops, that's. That's what I want to see. And yet we still have these directions recorded in our text. The text is pointing to something. It's not pointing to the text itself. It's not saying, hey, read this for the sake of the text. He's pointing towards this is what a house of God looks like. And so we can do this a couple more times. Here's Revelations. I love Revelation. We can pick this up in a couple different places. This is um, John describing his vision of what heaven looks like. And there's a couple different representations. Um, We can see this in Daniel a little bit. Uh, Isaiah talks about the throne room. John talks a little bit about heaven here, but I can read it, and, and I've, I've got to tell you, my mind's going all over because I've never constructed this before, but uh, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I heard uh, speaking to me like a trumpet and said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. And he, he drops down, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, Uh, A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. uh, And and there were uh, uh, those that were seated on them were the 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads and on and on and flashes of lightning. And I get all that and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm blurry at this point because my vision's not great. And I'm, well, what is he talking about? This is the artistry of the text. Look at that. Now, I, I get it. These you're not going to find these pictures in the text, right? You guys know that? What we, what we have from the text is the Hebrew language, and it's written backwards, and then we get the Greek language. But we don't get this unless we look at the artistry within the text. John is trying to tell us what it's going to be like. This is what I saw in my vision. And so the text, again, is not pointing to itself, It's pointing to the throne room of heaven. And so there's a challenge there. And and I want to just talk about a few things here. And I'll try not to be long-winded, but we'll see where it goes. First of all, understand that we had an oral tradition to begin with. And so it existed to bring the Israelites' faith to life. We told these stories to our children so that they would know. And so that's where this comes from. And we have to realize there were very few writings at that time. And literacy would not have been what it is today. So even if they had a scroll, could they read the scroll? And that would have been a difficulty. Uh, But we have to acknowledge the, the experiential aspect of our journey. Think about all the food laws and all the celebrations that the nation of Israel had. And it was all to reflect back to something bigger. The Passover was to talk about how God redeemed them from the nation of slavery in in Egypt. 
And so that's beautiful. And, and then there's baptism for us. What does that represent? I mean, it's not like he says, Bert, I want you to draw a picture of baptism. He says, Bert, I want you to go into the waters. Come up. Feel the refreshment. Feel the cleansing. Understand what I'm trying to do to you as redeeming you. And then there's what we just did today, the communion. How often do we take that? Because the text is not saying, hey, let's sit around and talk about communion. Let's talk about what it would be like if we were baptized. He's saying, go and be a part of it and experience this faith, this faith to move past the cognitive ascent of our faith. And I understand the text gets us there, but the text is always pointing someplace else. And so we can keep looking at this, the temple, the tabernacle, the Spirit of God. All of these things are meant to be experienced. We need to experience the Spirit of God. We need to experience what the tabernacle, that's why the directions are there. That's why the format is there for, for thousands of years, hundreds of years. This is what a tabernacle would look like if you were out in the desert with God and he was guiding you and his presence would be there. I, I'm trying to relate to that. I'm trying to understand that my spiritual journey is real and it is founded in reality, not a written document per se, although it's there, it's witnessed too in the documents and into the text. Um, the rich imagery of heaven, think about Psalms. What is that? That's poetry about the experience with God. And what do we do? We, we get up here and we sing about heaven, right? Because our song is pointing to the next reality. And it sings about Jesus 2,000 years ago because the song is pointing to the reality of a sacrificial lamb. The poetry is pointing. And so what, what's the point? Our faith was meant to be experiential. We were meant to experience our faith, not just know or learn about it. Whether it's, it's the plans in the temple or the description of the th throne room, we were meant to be called into that reality. We are called to go and do and be, not to study and reflect. Now there's a point that the study and reflection has, and we need that, okay? But we then move into the reality of what the studying and the reflection has guided us into. I'm going to give us an analogy, football here. Um, th those are huddles, by the way. I learned this the other day. Did you know uh, that the first huddle was developed for deaf players? Herb, I thought of you when I found that out. I thought, wow, that's what the purpose was, to come together to communicate so that the players that were deaf would know what to do, All right? Uh, I remember my first coaching job in Texas. So I'll tell you how famous of a coach I was. When you put words football and Texas together, people sit up. I noticed some of you are like, oh yeah, Paddock's the man. Let me tell you about my football Texas experience. I was third string coach for seventh grade. They had the A team, the B team, and then we called the, the last team the Roys. They were called the rest of y'alls. All right? We had 200 seventh graders suited up for Texas football. And we went out and I've never seen a team lose that bad. We were awful. And this is, you're gonna think I'm stretching, you're gonna think that's a preacher's story, okay, it's not. I had 70 players on my team. I had six huddles along the sidelines in groups of 11, and they had to hold hands. If they weren't holding hands, they didn't get on the field. 
because I couldn't be running around. Do I have 10? Do I have 12? I don't know how many people are out there. I know there's 70 of them over there. And I would say, team one, if they were holding hands, you got to take the field. If you weren't, sorry, team two, get on the field. And that's how we did it. I put them in a huddle. It was called an open face huddle so that I could look in and I could see 11 little heads really, really quickly. Okay, that was my huddle. That was not the huddle that the varsity coach asked for in his handbook that he had given me a couple months before the season. He wanted the closed-faced huddle. He wanted, uh, let's see if I can get this. He wanted this kind of huddle or that kind of huddle, all right? He didn't want this. This is open face. He wanted that. But when my guys were out there, I couldn't tell how many were in a huddle. So I had open face. He came down and chewed me up one side and down the other, told me he was going to have my job, some colorful language. Uh, but anyway, he was losing. He was the varsity coach at the high school, and they were getting smacked. And so he came down to the middle school and let me have it that day. It was, it was just awful. All right, so now I'm going to need therapy afterwards. But he was all about the huddle. Okay? And I want us to think about that, guys. If all we do is come and huddle, would you go watch a UT game where the team came to the huddle? They had a great plan. They were really excited. They looked good. All the colors were right. And then they ran to the line. And then the whistle blew and they'd run back to the huddle. And they would talk about it again. Hey, this time let's talk about more football, right? This time we might even pass the football. We might even touch a football. And then they'd run back to the line and get down in their stance. And then the whistle would blow and they'd run back to the huddle. What are they not ever getting to do? They never experience the game. They can talk about it. They're coached, they're in the right clothes for it, they're ready for action. And that becomes the huddle. Sometimes we are really good at huddles. We've been doing it for a long time. We may have even forgotten that our faith has always been meant to be experiential. There's this whole go and do idea. But we're good at huddling. You know, Christ talked about the hungry right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. And then what does he do? He actually shows up and feeds them. I'm mean, what are you thinking? He talks about the sick. You know, I've come to save the sick. I don't, I'm, 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 I'm a physician for those that need me. I can say that. But then what does he do? He shows up and he begins to work with the sick. Calculus is awesome. Okay. But is it really? Unless I begin to experience it. Every, every time we launch another spacecraft, that's a trajectory, that's calculus. Every time a, a fighter pilot gets, or any pilot gets in behind the wheel of one of those fancy planes and he hits G-force after G-force after G-force, that's second derivative. He's talking about acceleration at that point. But that's awesome. All right, sitting in a classroom, mm, I mean, if it's me, you're probably like, wow, it's so great to be here with... Bert. But then there's real calculus. And if you had your choice, the artistry of the text is rich. And it's meaning and it's full of life. We need to do our part. We need to explore faithfully creative ways of experiencing the Word of God. We can find it in song. We can find it in worship. Can we find it in communion and baptism? It's experiential. That's what he calls us to. He is well aware that I am trapped in a physical body. And that I lack attention span. And that I have limited ability. He wants me to experience it. Can we find it in creation? 
in our world, we're told we can. We're left without excuse. Can we find it living out and in teaching the mission and, and in service? I engage the text when I go and do. It's one thing to talk about service. It's one thing to talk about loving others. It's one thing uh, to talk about reaching out to the marginalized in our community. I want, us to, I want us to look at one more, maybe two more pieces of art. Um, this is Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, uh, take your inheritance, the kingdom has prepared for you, and, and you get this, this is the sheep and the goats. You remember that? And then the sheep say, hey, when did we do that? And he says, man, every time you saw a poor person, every time you saw somebody thirsty and you gave them something to drink, every time you saw somebody hungry and you gave them food, every time you saw naked and you, every time you visited a person in prison and you, and the language is whatever you have done, and I like this, is, this is huge because sometimes I want to put the word for the least of these. But that's not the word. The word is to the least of these. Because the goats are over here, aren't they? It's what we have done to the least of these. This is, this is a double-edged sword. Because I can do things that are good to the least of these. And I can do things that are bad to the least of these. It's what we do to. And that, that's on both sides. That's sheep and goat. Sometimes when I see the least of these, I can do good things to the least of these. Sometimes I can do bad things to the least of these. That is my faith being lived out. And this is, this is God's mission. If you've been in my class, we've been talking a lot about the missional hermeneutic, right? As we track this through the text, God calls us into action. He doesn't call us to read, study, and then walk back home and have a good discussion about it. He says, hey, read, study, and then go do specifically to the least of these. I want to give you another piece of artwork here. Um, how many of you know what this is? Anybody ever seen this? It looks like Jesus on the cross. It does. If you look down here, you can barely see it. You do it to me. So you go back to Matthew 25, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. If you've fed them, you've fed me. If you've loved them, you've loved me. If you've cursed them, guess what? You're, cur you're cursing me. If you've beaten them, you've beaten me. Because one thing we have is a suffering servant who enters into our sorrow, enters into our brokenness, and he knows our wounds because he bears our wounds. So this window, uh, if, you, if, you're, um, if you're aware back in the 60s, we had some civil rights movements going on. Do you remember that? I don't know how many of you, I'm looking at you, I can gauge by the color of your hair. I'm like, you were there, you were there, you weren't there, you weren't there. Um, but in the 60s, we had a lot of strife in the, the civil rights era, the civil rights movement. There was a church in Birmingham. Birmingham was bombed by a guy named Dynamite Bob. That was his name. Four children were killed during that explosion. Of course, at this point, America's civil rights movement is all over the world. It's not just localized in the South or the South and the North. It's all over America. It's all over the world. People are reading newspapers. What's going on in America? Okay. 
a guy in Wales hears about this, and they lost one of their windows. And so he builds a stained glass window, and this is the window right here from Wales. And he sends it to the church in Birmingham, and I want you to look at that. There are two hands on Christ there. And of course, it, it looks like the crucifixion, right? I mean, you've got the hands spread out. But notice there's two hands. There's one up saying no to the oppression. And then there's one out saying, I help the oppressed. And that is mission of God as the church enters into and says no to hunger. We feed those. No to sickness, we heal or help heal. No to oppression and violence, we are a people of, tea, of, of peace and we bring God's shalom. As in heaven, so on earth. This picture exemplifies what it means to experience Matthew chapter 25. Because we understand, as we do to them, we do to him. Now notice that his hand is a resistant hand, not a violent hand. We don't overcome oppression with violence. We overcome oppression how? The same way Christ did. Through love, long-suffering, perseverance, compassion. We enter into humanity's plight so that we can, as Christ does, and as we should, help humanity overcome. And so this is one text that I think uh, illustrates itself well in art. I've got one more image for you, I think. This is Revelations chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I love this picture. This picture is entitled, First Day in Heaven. You realize we will have a first day in heaven, right? Do we live into that reality where I rush and total abandonment and he brings me in as, as a hen brings in its chicks, right? As the prodigal father doesn't wait for his son to come to him but rushes out. This is the image that I have to live into, sometimes on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, because sometimes here it gets to feel a little rough. And so I wanted to encourage you guys as we think about this. Our faith is awesome. Our God is awesome. Our church is awesome. Calculus is awesome too, but... We are created to experience it. 
not talk about it. I know sometimes we sing about it. Our God is an awesome God. I get it. I do. I love the song. But I have to live into that. The text and the church were never pointing towards themselves. We were always pointing to something greater. And sometimes we huddle around the text and we forget that what it's pointing to is not here, but it's there, or there, or there, or there, or this person, or that person, or that relationship, or, or that area of need, or that heaven homecoming. And we have to bring that beautiful tapestry in the text, that artistic relevance, down here for ourselves. I love you guys. Absolutely do. But sometimes we need to approach the text in a way that invites us to experience what the text is talking about. You know, my, my math lessons are boring, I'll be honest with you. I've got two sons in here somewhere, one of them, Ben, just nod and say, yes it is. He'll tell you it's boring. Okay, I confess. But I know what it can lead to. All right? Sometimes we surround the text and we want to make the text the whole and the entire of our faith journey. The text informs the journey. Don't get me wrong. Without the text, my journey would be haphazard. It would be broken roller coasters. That's my life without a text, right? It would be like, this one's got one bump, this one gets shot off. Who knows where that cart went? We hope they're alive. But the text informs the journey, but the journey is meant to be spent and done. And so I want to invite us into that this morning. I want to pray over us as we finish. Um, if, you, if you need to come and experience something, if it's the waters of baptism, please come. If you need to come and experience confession, and, and we need to meet uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the library with one of our elders, please come and, and do that as well. But bottom line, when you leave the doors, please be about experiencing the kingdom of God, whether that's through service or love or song or art. Whatever avenue you need to get to so that this becomes more than a cognitive journey, but a life well lived, that's what I want to invite you to. So I'm going to pray, and then Jim will, will stand as you come. Father, thank you for our morning, our time together. Thank you for giving us a journey that's meant to be experienced. You put us in physical bodies because you knew we were meant to experience something through the text, through the Spirit of God, through your creation, through the Word of God. All of these things cry out, Abba, Father. And Lord, I am ready for my first day. We all are. But that is on your timing. Father, bless our morning. For those of us that are hurting, wounded, let us experience health and healing and love and community and the presence of your spirit. Let us experience the shalom of heaven here on earth. In Christ's name, amen.